0: January 20th, 1961, newly elected president addressed the nation he was elected to represent. It's in the midst of the Cold War, that icy relationship between two world powers left after World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union, and their allies, and the threat of nuclear war. President Kennedy addressed not only Americans in his speech, but he spoke also to those beyond our borders, saying, To those people in huts and villages of half the globe, struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, we pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves for whatever period is required. Not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is right. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. To our sister republic south of our border, we offer a special pledge to convert our good words into good deeds, to assist free men and free governments in casting off the chains of poverty. Later on in his speech, Kennedy appealed to both sides in the Cold War to remember the common needs of mankind. What is it that we can all focus on together? You have your ideology, we have our ideology, but there are needs of people, very tangible needs of people underneath both of these ideologies and around the world. He says, Let both sides unite to heed in all corners of the earth the command of Isaiah to undo the heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free, creating a new world of law where the strong are just and the weak secure and the peace preserved. Then the newly elected president appointed to a common enemy of mankind, tyranny, poverty, disease, and even war itself, proposing a united front, fighting against these enemies together as two sides ideologically opposed to each other, forming an alliance for the betterment of all humanity. He focuses his attentions back to Americans with his famous quote, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country and concluded his speech with these words, "...with a good conscience, our only sure reward. With history, the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to the land, to lead the land that we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own." It was a speech that struck a chord with the citizens of our country, It pointed Americans to a noble task, offering more than just good words, but also good works, getting us to think beyond just ourselves, but to think of other people around the world. A unifying call to seek justice and peace, to eliminate tyranny and poverty, and even war itself. It encouraged Americans to look to the needs of others, even invoking the words from our text this morning, to undo the heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free. These words of Isaiah are powerful. They reorient our lives. They're powerful and they reorient our lives not because we're Americans and an American president had used them to form us to help think a certain way, but they're powerful and they reorient our lives because it is the very words of God. It's God's inerrant word. So with that in mind, open your Bibles to Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 12 as we look at Isaiah's message and its application for us today in the 21st century. And again, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able to. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 12. Again, reading in Jesus' name. Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, And bring the homeless poor into the house. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth. And your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness... And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins, you will raise up the age old foundations. And you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Father God, these are your words. We recognize this morning that your word is true. We recognize this morning, Lord, that you work through your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would do what you desire to do in our hearts and in our lives through your word here this morning. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would draw our eyes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here in Isaiah 58, the Lord is speaking to his people through Isaiah. Going back a few verses before our text, in verse 3, the Lord answers a complaint of the people. The The people are grumbling and complaining, and their complaint is this. Why have we fasted, and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you do not notice? Think about that. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? What are the people concerned about here as they voice their grievances with the Lord? They're fasting. They're doing the self-sacrificial things for God. They're just depriving themselves of good things and all for the honor of God, or so they say, but he doesn't seem to be noticing, and that's their issue. Why are we doing this, God, if you're not noticing this, if you don't see us? He doesn't seem to be rewarding their actions. God isn't giving his people here any shining star awards just for existing or just for going through the motions. Although they may be going through the actions that he has prescribed, but the focus is way off. They aren't fasting to seek the Lord. They're fasting to earn the Lord's blessing. They're fasting to earn the Lord's favor. When God doesn't respond in the way that the people expect or the people are hoping, then they raise their voices as though somehow their actions entitled them to God's favor, claiming that God is somehow doing them wrong because, God, I fasted, therefore you should be doing this. But I don't see you. I don't hear you. I'm not getting this. I'm holding up my end of the bargain, God. Where are you? This is a question they're asking in verse 3. Fasting is beneficial both spiritually and also physically. It encourages discipline, training ourselves for a greater reward than instant gratification. How many times in our own lives could a little more self-discipline have spared us from sin if we were truly to consider the full gravity of whatever it is that we crave? We throw that out. And we throw discipline out the window and we say, but I want this. And we go after it, satisfying our craving for sin. What if we crave something better, something holy, if we craved Christ himself? Self-discipline reminds us of the end goal of what it is we're truly seeking after and helps us to deny ourselves of what we could have. For athletes training for some competition, they deny themselves They don't go out with their friends all the time. They train, they practice, they have strict diets and regimens for a greater purpose. This is what God's people are doing. But their greater purpose was only patting themselves on the back and somehow earning God's favor for them. So fasting itself here isn't the issue. Fasting in and of itself is a neutral thing. You can buy books on intermittent fasting and all of that good stuff. It's not a, a spiritual thing in and of itself. It can be used for good in seeking the Lord, or it can be used as the people here are using it as a tool to manipulate God into granting his favor. Now, we shouldn't just throw out fasting simply because there's a potential for corruption. If that's the case, we should throw out all kinds of things, just about everything, because we're pretty good at corrupting the good things that God has given us, right? Marriage is a good thing. Do we corrupt it? Husbands and wives? Yeah, we do, don't we? Food is a good thing. Do we corrupt that and use that for our own means? Yes, sometimes we do. Our jobs are good things. Do we corrupt that as well, making that into an idol rather than in something that we can use to serve and worship God? We do. Just about every good thing that God gives to us, we somehow seek to manipulate it and corrupt it. It happens when we tell ourselves that we earn credit or a good or better standing with God because of something that we've done. And that can happen in a number of ways. When we believe that we're entitled to God's favor because, fill in the blank here, we've tried hard to follow Him. We've lived a a good life. We've been spending more time in prayer and Bible study lately. Or maybe we're not as, as bad as somebody else. We put a little bit more in the offering plate this week as compared to last week, or, or whatever it might be. All of these different things that we tell ourselves, I'm doing something for God, therefore, God, you must bless me in return. All of these things are good things, and we should do them. I'm not saying don't. But we shouldn't have the expectation that by somehow doing these things, we unlock the storehouses of God's favor and we'll reap some material reward for it. Because that mindset despises Christ by seeking another route to God contrary to the gospel. It proclaims the gospel specifically the life, death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, saying that this isn't enough to reconcile it with God, but there is still something something big or something small, whatever it is, but there is something that you must do to make sure that God is on your side. But if we go back to Scripture and we ask the question, who acted first? Did God act first to save us? Or was God somehow neutral and he thought, you know, I'm just waiting for someone to reach out to me and then, and then if, if I think they're worth it, then, then maybe I'll come down and help them out a little bit. God sent his Son while we were yet sinners. God is the one who acts. We know how God feels towards us, acts towards us, thinks toward us in his Son, Jesus Christ. It's not due to our actions or what we're doing. So this idea of manipulating God, we have to throw out the window. Because faith isn't something that we do for God, but it is a gracious gift of God through which we are justified and we have peace with God. Our natural reaction is to look to ourselves rather than to look to the Lord. And that's exactly what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 58. The people cry out, God, we did the thing. Where are you? Why aren't you keeping your end of the bargain? In verse 6, God offers a correction to their polluted practice. What is the fast that God has chosen? He explains here and describes it for us in verse 6, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bonds of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide the bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? The Lord is reorienting the focus of our fasting from what we can achieve for ourselves It's not some personal level of piety that we're trying to seek after or some semblance of a holy life that we're trying to get by doing these good things. But God points us to others. He points us to our neighbors. and He directs us to serve our neighbors. These are the good works that God is after. One of the memory verses that the kids at BBS learned this past week was Ephesians 2.10. Which addresses the purpose for which we are saved. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has created us for good works. The focus of these good works, again, isn't that we could just better ourselves. It's not that we could gain some personal piety. It's not so that we could somehow earn favor with God or manipulate God into working on our behalf. The purpose of our good works is to serve our neighbor, whoever that may be. Friends, family, neighbors, fellow citizens, acquaintances, you get the idea. Kevin mentioned the Fundamental Principles Study, and the last fundamental principle reminds us of this, that it is the responsibility of every believer to do good and to work, for the bond, to work for the salvation of souls and the quickening of spiritual life. This is what God has called us to. This is the good work that God has prepared ahead of time for us to walk in, or in the words of Isaiah, the loosening of the bonds of wickedness, undoing the yoke of the oppression, and to let the oppressed go free. What are God's people doing, though, in verse 4? They're fasting in verse 3, and and they're complaining because God doesn't seem to be holding up his end of the bargain. And in verse 4, God calls out their practices with their fasting. They're fasting for contention and strife. They're acting wickedly. They're driving their workers hard. They're laying burdens upon others that they themselves weren't able to bear. Is this what God wants from fasting? Does he want our lives to make it harder for somebody else? Or has God called us to salvation so that we could reach out and serve others? God calls us to salvation so that we could be his hands and feet, that we could be the body of Christ, that we would walk in the good works which he has prepared beforehand for us to do. Part of that plan of salvation Is God working through his people to reveal himself to others in a tangible way? And this is the purpose of the fast. Again, not personal piety, not for losing weight, but for love and service of neighbor. Look at verse 7. You don't eat, but why? So you can divide your bread with the hungry. So that you can share the resources that God has blessed you with to share with those who don't have those resources. It's entering into another person's pain and comforting them with the comfort that we've received from God. Our good works aren't supposed to isolate us from our neighbors and relationships with others, but our good works call us into relationships with others. In doing these things, and faithfully loving and serving our neighbors, God promises in verse 8, a gracious promise. Your light will break out like the dawn and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. To comment on that with the words of Christ in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and say you're a pretty good person. If you're fast enough to open up to Matthew chapter 5, you know that that's not how the verse ends. So that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our good works aren't about ourselves. They're not about furthering us or earning, us earning good favor with the Lord. But it's that God would be glorified, that others would see him, that he would be calling others to himself through us. The good works we do aren't for praise and accolades of other men. It's not for praise and accolades and the favor of God for ourselves either. But we do them that others might see the love of God and glorify him, not us. Those are rightly oriented works. That's what the people are lacking in Isaiah 58. Verse 9 reminds us that this is what a life of faith looks like. As God is at work in and through us, as we love and serve our neighbors, there the Lord is present. Again, we are his hands and feet. He doesn't have the same silence that led to the people's frustration in verse 3. The God, where are you? We've done the thing. Mindset. Instead, we remove the yoke From our midst, we remove the finger-pointing. We remove the speaking wickedness. And God is present. And God is there. Because we're good at speaking wickedness. We're good at finger-pointing. We're good at putting, putting yokes upon others, saying that if they're going to be worthy of my time, they have to meet this, 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 and this criteria. But the gospel removes those things and shows us the love of God for no... No expectation in return. And there is Christ. He continues in verse 10 Give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. We pause here. What benefit do we gain in giving ourselves to the hungry? What benefit is there to us in entering the pain of the afflicted when we could go right on living our busy lives blissfully ignorant of the plight of others? What benefit is there for us? And if you've asked that question, that's the wrong question to ask. Jesus didn't ask what benefit is there, God, in me going down to earth. Remind me again what benefit there is for me in dying in this horrible, awful way. God, if there's a benefit in it for me, then then maybe I'll do it. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, looking out not only for his interest, but for the interests of others, for your interest. This is the love of Christ made manifest in actions. The question isn't what benefit is there for me, but the focus ought to be not on ourselves. God calls us to live our lives not in selfishness, but in selflessness, because it's not about us. God has called us to good works, and it can be uncomfortable, but it's not about our comfort. It's looking out for the interests of others, and that is a noble, God-honoring task in which God is glorified, and others come to see the grace and the love of God in Christ Jesus through you. The passage continues with the more gracious promises of the Lord, using two pictures for us. The first in verse 11 is that of an oasis with water that doesn't fail. We live in an agricultural society here. Water's come kind of important, right? I haven't ever looked at purchasing acreage down here, but I'd be willing to guess, and I have a hunch, that irrigated land is a little more expensive than dry land. Is that true? Correct me if I'm wrong. That's true. Why is it more expensive? Because there is a source of water there. You can manage the water. You know that even if it's dried, your crops are still going to grow there. The source of water isn't going to dry out, hopefully. God gives this picture here of an oasis with water that does not dry out. This is what God is promising to his people. It says, you have a source of water, a consistent, reliable source that does not fail, that will not fail. And so because of that, there will be life. Phrasing this promise in a different way, I will sustain you. I will guide you. I will nourish you. I will strengthen you. And as a turbulent time in their history approaches, the time of their captivity and the time of their exile These promises are going to be something that they can hold on to. And then comes the next picture, a picture of rebuilding. Rebuilding implies destruction, right? You don't rebuild a house from scratch unless there's already a house there. You build a house from scratch. You rebuild on something that's already been built or with something that you already have. It's a definition of rebuilding. So there implies here a destruction that is coming. But the destruction is not the end. That time would come, the destruction of God's people, a hundred years from Isaiah's prophecy. But then that promise of rebuilding would also still stand. The end, so to speak, would not be the end. These last two verses, verses 11 and 12, are what make verses 3 and 4 and our own self-righteous thinking so abominable because we fail to see the faithfulness and the love of God. God promises here in his own goodness that he will sustain, that he will restore, that he will rebuild. For a people who have been given second, third, fourth, fifth, eighth, an infinite number of chances, near infinite number of chances, God gives them another chance. Instead of seeing God's goodness, we take matters into our own hands We try to secure for ourselves something of value to which we can cling. All the while, God has promised, look to me. I will sustain you. I will guide you. I will strengthen you. I will restore you. I will satisfy. That is the message that we have to proclaim. A satisfaction found not in ourselves, not in what we can do for ourselves, but a satisfaction that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. This is the message we bring to our neighbors to our neighbors who hunger and are satisfied as we share food. But that satisfaction is not going to last. But through the love of Christ, through our actions, they see the one who loves without expectation of any return. To the neighbors oppressed in bondage and affliction, as we enter into their pain, Christ enters and walks alongside them in the flesh as we are his hands and feet. And we point them to the love of God and Christ for them not just with good thoughts, good words, good vibes, whatever those are, but with our actions. God has called us to good works. He has prepared works for us to do, and even if those works are generally unpleasant, we do them, all the while trusting in the faithful promise of God, that he hears us when we cry to him, and he is with us, that he goes both before us and behind us, and as we faithfully walk in the work to which he has called us, He calls sinners to salvation, and miracle of miracles. He even uses us in the process. Let us not grow tired of doing good, but resting in his faithfulness, resting in his promises. Let us walk in those good works that he has for us to do. Not focusing on our own benefit, but for the benefit of our neighbors. Follow in Christ's footsteps. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come again before you, thanking you for history, thanking you for your word, thanking you, Lord, for the examples that have gone on before us. And as we look at these examples, Lord, you show us the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as we look deeper at these things, we see, God, that that we're not all too different. We see a lot of ourselves. We pray that you would forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of the times where we seek to do works only for what we can find in return and not for the purpose of loving our neighbor. Lord, help us to love our neighbor as as you have called us to love, with the love that's not focused on ourselves or what we get in return, but Lord, a love that simply seeks to provide for others. Lord, a love that simply seeks to undo the bondage, the yoke of oppression that this world puts on people, a love that points people to you and what you have done. Thank you, God, for your love that you have given to us, and that is the source of our love for others. So, Father, we pray that this love would continue to spill out in our lives and our actions each and every day. We pray, Lord, for those who are experiencing various needs, that you would be working in their hearts and their lives. Lord, put people, put your church in their paths to come and to be your hands and feet, that they would come to know you, Lord, as well. We pray that your word would go forth. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in the tasks to which you have called us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.